Now, if you could grab your Bibles and stand with me. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seats below you. It looks like this. And we're going to turn to Mark chapter 15. And this is um, page 553 in this Bible, okay? 553, if you're looking for that, I should turn to it in my Bible. I like for us to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. So Mark 15, and we're going to read the first 20 verses of this chapter. So read along with me. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with the reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning to a difficult passage. Um, Father, a, a passage that is gruesome and terrifying and horrible. And God, we ask that you would give us wisdom to see it with new eyes, to see um, what you inspired Mark to write. Lord, this morning, we want to understand what you have for us. So God, awake us both physically and spiritually. Lord, I pray for those in this room who do not know you, who are under your wrath, who so desperately need to be saved. And so God, this morning, we would ask you to be here in power, to penetrate into hard hearts, to break those hard hearts, to give them a new heart, a soft heart, a heart of flesh. And God, this morning we want to understand you more. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I looked it up. We began studying the book of Mark on February 20th, 2011. So it's been more than 13 months, and we're almost done. We are almost done. Since then, we've preached kind of right around 53 sermons. I couldn't get the exact count because we had a few weeks where it didn't get recorded, and I just kicked my water bottle over. (laughs) But we've been in this book for a while. So chances are you've forgotten 
some of the details that we've gone through. In fact, I know that that's probably true because I went through and looked uh, while I was studying this week and forgot some of the stories that we had studied, some of the things that popped out at me. So what I want to do real fast, and I mean that in all sincerity, go back to Mark chapter 1. We are going to fly through the Gospel of Mark and just review a few highlights to help give us context for this passage and studying Jesus before Pilate. So Mark 1, verse 1, and and Mark deliberately starts the Gospel off, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Who is he? The Son of God. Very important. Skip down to verse 21. Jesus' first recorded encounter with a, a demon. And he teaches. And the people are amazed at his teaching. And in verse 23, immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus casts out the demon. And the people in the synagogue are all amazed, verse 27, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. We move on to chapter 2, and as Jesus continues his ministry, we see him healing people, casting out demons, performing miracles. And we see this man who's let through the roof by his friends. He's paralyzed. He can't get around on his own. And Jesus looks at this man and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders are taken aback. They're shocked. And they say in their hearts in verse 7 of chapter 2, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That is a good question. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and our favorite word in Mark, immediately picked up his bed and went out before them, also that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Go down to chapter 3, verse 11. On the the Sea of Galilee, there's a storm. The waves are beginning to break out. And we see, sorry, this is the wrong wrong portion, I'm sorry. Verse 11, chapter 3. Unclean spirits again begin to see him. These demon-possessed people and the spirits begin to talk through these men and women. And they fall down before Jesus and they cry out, You are the... Son of God. The Son of God. In the next part, in verse 13, Jesus chooses how many apostles? Twelve. Which matches exactly the tribes of the nation of Israel. And Jesus, in one sense, is making a new Israel. He's he's doing what Israel failed to do. And so he gathers these followers around him. And we see him doing these things in great power. In chapter 4, Look at verse 41 as we continue to move. This is uh, what I meant. This is the end of the storm. Jesus wakes up in the boat, in the middle of the storm, speaks a word, and the storm stops. And the twelve that are in the boat with him are filled with great fear and say to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? 
Who is this man? Move on to chapter 5. A young daughter has, has died. And this ruler of the synagogue has come to Jesus saying, Help my daughter. Jesus goes into the room. He tells her, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Jesus doing these amazing things. Chapter 6. Out in the desert, out in the wilderness, there's a crowd of at least 5,000 people who are so hungry spiritually to hear the word of God, they've forgotten to eat. And Jesus provides from a little boy's lunch a potluck for every single person that is there, so much so that there is room left over. And he reminds the people of another time that the children of Israel were in the wilderness needing food. And God provides it from heaven. And Jesus indeed does the same. Move on in chapter 6. Again, there's another storm on the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples are rowing furiously in their boats. And someone comes out to them walking on the water. Walking on the water. And the disciples recognize him and say, About time, Jesus. No, that's not what they said. Look at verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. What an amazing person we see here in Jesus. Chapter 8. He does it again. Feeds 4,000 in the middle of the wilderness. And there's seven baskets left over. As we get towards the end of chapter 8, in verse 27 we have um, one of the pivotal points in the book of Mark. You'll remember that Jesus takes his disciples far up north into Caesarea Philippi. Which, by the way, if you come with us to Israel in 2013, we're going to go there. And we'll read this passage on the site. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? So this question keeps coming up. Who is this man? And they told him, well, people say John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. And he says, very important question that is true for us today as well. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. He gets it, or so it seems. For in the next passage, Jesus begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter, who just made the great confession of Jesus as the Messiah of Israel, took him aside and began to rebuke him. Get behind me, Satan, Jesus says to him. <laughs> That's not the nickname that Peter was hoping for in that situation. He liked the nickname Rock. But Jesus calls him Satan. Why? Because you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And immediately begins to teach about taking up your cross. Taking up your cross. Later on, he begins his first, he begins his second foretelling of his suffering in chapter 9. Chapter 9. Verse 31, he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And if you remember, we began to talk about all the failures that the disciples make here in trying to understand the kingdom. James and John ask for seats at Jesus' right hand. Uh, that They do not understand what's going on. In another passage, they begin to argue about who's the greatest. 
missing the point that Jesus continually makes. In chapter 10, the, the, the summit of the book of Mark, Jesus is walking ahead of them towards Jerusalem. They're all amazed. Those who were following were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. In the very next chapter, as we began to study Passion Week a few months ago, Jesus comes in to the town of Jerusalem on a donkey. And the people are praising him, shouting from the Psalms, Hosanna, calling him the son of David, waving palm branches, treating him like a king, like the Messiah. In chapter 12, we saw that Jesus goes into the temple and the religious leaders, every group of them, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they all send their best to try to get Jesus to stumble, to trip up. To say something that will get him indicted. And Jesus brilliantly answers all their questions. He turns their questions back on them. They're they're too afraid to ask anything anymore. Because Jesus answers perfectly. In chapter 13, Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple. And then he also talks about the end times. What is going to happen at the end? He talks about the gospel going out among the nations. He talks about the abomination of desolation. He talks about the coming of the Son of Man. He uses a fig tree as an example. And all these things have led us to chapter 14, where Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem and celebrates the Passover with his disciples. We've seen Judas leave as he's about to betray Jesus. We saw Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying for hours to his Father. We see Jesus submitted to the Father's will. We saw last week Jesus before the Sanhedrin, the council of Jewish leaders. And that all has led us to chapter 15. And in chapter 15, we begin to see the final steps to the cross. So in your notes this morning, you'll notice just three points and blank space for you to write in. Because I'm going to share a lot of material here in a very short amount of time. But that first point in your notes is the amazing silence of King Jesus. The amazing silence of King Jesus. And Mark gives us a very condensed version of what's going on here. So praise the Lord, we have four Gospels. Because we can go to the other Gospels and fill in the blanks and see the fullness of what has gone on. And I provided that for you in your notes, kind of the phases of Jesus' trial. Not all of them are mentioned in the book of Mark. As we've studied the book of Mark, we've seen that he's concise, he's brief, he's moving on. He's the action writer of the gospel writers. And that moves us to verse 1. And so you'll remember that, that Peter has just denied Jesus. Okay, Jesus was before the Sanhedrin at an illegal gathering in the middle of the night. They tried to bring witnesses against Jesus. The witnesses couldn't agree. Jesus declares in no uncertain terms that he is the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, the Son of God. And now we see in verse 1 that as soon as it's morning, and for some of you that means (laughs) 8.30, for some of you that means, oh, it's almost noon. (laughs) Um, For these people, that meant Fred Johnson time. That's what this meant. That meant there's a tiny bit of light peeking over the horizon. It's time to get up. It's morning time. 
And, and that is what's going on here. This is early morning, the time of day you thought only came once a day, four o'clock in the morning. No, that happens, that happens twice, 4 p.m., 4 a.m., but most of us blessedly are asleep at that time. They, they meet together, and it seems like as the night has gone on, that the religious leaders have trickled in. You know, they're waking them up, they're bringing them in, hey, we've got Jesus, we finally got him, and everyone's making their way to the council. And as soon as it's morning, as soon as it's legal, they begin to consult. The chief priests take the lead, and the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bind Jesus. They tie him up, and they deliver him over to Pilate. Now, um, this matches exactly what we just read in chapter 10, right? Jesus said, they're going to deliver me to the Gentiles. Pilate is a Gentile. He is the Roman prefect. He's the governor of Judea. And they hand him over to Pilate. And just a few words um, on Pilate. Um, a lot of times we, we kind of see him briefly, and then, and then he's gone from the Gospels. But we actually have historical evidence of, of Pilate. We know that he was a man. He did exist. Um, we know some things about him. Um, he was not a, a, a fun guy. Um, this is how Philo uh, describes him. He was naturally inflexible, a blend of self-will and relentlessness. And he resorted to brutal suppression rather than diplomacy. When he first came to the land of Israel, he brought in standards with flags with the picture of Caesar on them, declaring Caesar as the son of God. And he brought them into Jerusalem. And the... The Jews were so horrified by this, they traveled 70 miles to the coast, to Caesarea, protesting in mass before the governor. Not knowing the Jewish people yet, Pilate decided that he would have the soldiers pull out their swords. And the Jewish people, because they, they loved the temple so much, they loved the holy city of Jerusalem so much, laid down on the ground and bared their necks and say, hack away. And Pilate relented. Pilate pulled back, trying to figure out who are these Jewish people. I do not understand them. And that continued to happen. Pilate continued to, to clash with the Jewish people. But we shouldn't see Pilate as, as some um, crazy supervillain. No, um, one of the commentators said this, Pilate was no unnatural monster. He was a man in so many ways like all others. This is what makes his story such a warning and also so credible. If you go to Acts 18, you see another Roman official who doesn't really care about the Jewish proceedings. Um, they bring Paul before the, the council, the Bema seat, and they say, uh, this guy's stirring up these things in Gallio. The governor says, I don't care. It's your Jewish religious matters. You take care of it. I don't want anything to do with it. And that could have been Pilate's response as well. Pilate doesn't care about the Jewish religion. As long as everyone stays calm and composed and there's no uprisings, then let's let them practice what they'll practice. But the chief priests bring before Pilate a bigger problem. And they have conspired against him, and in their council they've come up with a Jewish problem. Jesus has committed blasphemy. He is a blasphemer. He has rejected the truth of the Torah. He has put himself in the place of God, and that cannot be tolerated. But that's not going to fly with Pilate. You take him to Pilate and say, this man's committed blasphemy. And he says, I don't care. And so we know from the other Gospels, specifically Luke, that they come before Pilate and they've changed the charges. They begin to, to pose Jesus as a, re, as a rebel, as an insurgent, as an insurrectionist, as someone who wants to overthrow the Romans. 
And we see this in verse 2. Pilate has been told what the charges are, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And that's, that's a Gentile formulation. The Jewish people of the time would not have said that. They would have said the king of Israel. They would have called him the king of Israel. And Pilate, trying to understand the religious goings on here, says, are you the king of the Jews? And again, this, this brings up memories at Christmas time when we talk about Herod. Right? And the Magi come and they're looking for this, this baby, this king of the Jews. And Herod is afraid because Herod is the king of the Jews. And so Pilate asks this man, are you the king of the Jews? And look at what Jesus says in verse 2. Look at what he says. You have said so. In the Greek, it's two words. Su leges. That's all he says. And it just means you have said so. So he doesn't say yes. But he doesn't say no. And he could have said either one of those. He could have said, yes, I am, if you understand me this way. Or he said, no, I'm not the king of the Jews in the way that they're calling me king of the Jews. Here's who I am. But instead, we see Jesus' amazing silence. These are the only two words or four words in English we see in these 20 verses that Jesus says. So if you have a red letter Bible, it's really easy. Like that's the only red in this whole passage. And verse 3 we see that the chief priests begin to accuse him of many things. And they begin to say, well, he, he said we shouldn't pay taxes, which is a blatant lie, because he said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. They said he wants to destroy the temple, which he said in some senses, but they've twisted that. And, and they begin to, to call him um, one who is a treasonous traitor. He's rising up against the Romans. And I want you to know Notice what Pilate says in verse 4. Pilate's hearing all these things from the chief priests. They've got a case against this man. And Jesus is standing there silent. He's not defending himself. Most of us, in this case, would, would be very glad to inject our own commentary. Whoa, whoa, whoa that's a lie. Wait, wait, no, 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 no. He totally twisted that. We, we would defend ourselves. We would jump at the chance to do that. And yet Jesus stands there silently Pilate says, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? This is totally unnatural. When someone accuses you of something that is not true, most of the time we don't sit there and take it. Right? We're Americans. We have the law, we have truth, justice, and we want to that, that to be known. And so we defend ourselves. And Jesus, verse 5, made no further answer. And Pilate's response is amazement. And if you go through the book of Mark, you can see this is kind of a theme. Jesus is amazing. He stills the storm. Amazing. He teaches with authority. Amazing. And every time that happens, the word brings it with it the nuance of admiration. They, they see this and, and they say, wow, that's amazing. There, there's wonder and marvel in it. And yet we should be careful to see here, Jesus is not, this is not a silence of surrender necessarily to the Romans or to the to Jewish leaders. Instead, it is a silence of surrender to the Father's will. We saw in the garden, Jesus surrenders himself to the Father's will. He says, Abba, there's any way, let this cup pass. But not my will, your will be done. And at this point, Jesus is surrendered to the Father. And this brings back pictures of Isaiah 53, which we could dwell on for a long time. But if you want to turn there really quick, Go back in your Bible to the prophets, Isaiah chapter 53. If you want to know more about it, you can check out the book table that Michael has set out in the breezeway. But Isaiah 53, written 700 years 
before the time of Jesus. In verse 7, the prediction is, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus shows that he is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 in so many ways. But Jesus does not open his mouth. And we are to take example from this. In First Peter, Peter uses this very thing as an example to us when we're persecuted, when we're unjustly accused. He says, make sure that your, your conduct is pure. Make sure that your conduct is pure. You don't need to answer every question. If you're mistreated, so is Jesus. He was reviled. He did not revile in return. And that brings us to the second point with the middle of the passage from verses 6 to 15, and that's Pilate's capitulation and King Jesus' substitution. Pilate's capitulation, King Jesus' substitution. And you'll notice that I'm going to emphasize King Jesus in all of these points because the King of the Jews phrase uh, happens four times in these 20 verses. It's repeated four different times. And so in verse 6, we get some historical background here, that there was a tradition that at the Feast of Passover, when all the Jewish males needed to come to Jerusalem to celebrate um, God's deliverance in the Exodus out of Egypt, he brought his people and many, many, many people in Jerusalem for Passover, and there was a tradition. Now, we don't have any record of this historically, but there's no reason to doubt this because it did happen in other places in the Roman Empire. But the tradition seemed to be that Pilate, feeling in a mood to help the people, to help them like him, to make sure there was no insurrection, would release a prisoner, would release a Jewish prisoner, and would, in that way, try to ingratiate himself to the Jewish people. Now, Pilate usually lived on the sea at Caesarea in his palace. But when feasts happened, the governor, the prefect, needed to be in Jerusalem. He needed to be there with extra troops just in case an uprising occurred. And so Pilate is in Jerusalem. He is here like he is every year. And we see verse 7. Among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, we're not sure which insurrection, but um, the Jewish people... Um, from several wings, mainly the zealots, rose up several times. In fact, 30 years after Jesus' death, there is the final uprising um, against the Romans, and that brings about the destruction of Jerusalem. But here we have a man who committed murder in the insurrection, and his name is Barabbas, which in Aramaic means son of a father. And we got to be careful here, but I think that this is really important. I think Mark points us out for a purpose. And Matthew seems to suggest that this man's name may have been Jesus Barabbas. Jesus, son of a father. And so that may be why he uh, makes sure that he clarifies when he's asking for to, to release Jesus, the king of the Jews. And so there's a very good chance that both of these men are named Jesus. But the bigger point here is Barabbas. Barabbas. Keep that in mind, son of a father. In verse 8, the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. Verse 9, he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And Pilate is misreading the situation. 
he, he saw, he's probably saw what happened on Sunday when Jesus rode into town and the crowds were out and the crowds were, were worshiping and singing and dancing. And he sees this crowd before him and he seems to be pretty sure that, that he can just release this, this king of the Jews, this Jesus. And that will be the yearly tradition. And he gets, um, a very good insight here in verse 10. For Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. So Pilate is no dummy. He can read from the situation what the chief priests are doing. Um, they're envious of this Jesus fellow who's, who's pulling away all of their followers. They, they've, they've left the chief priests. They've, they've left the, the traditional religious uh, celebration and they've come to follow Jesus, this upstart rabbi. And so, out of envy, they have delivered him. And so, Pilate thinks he's reading the situation right, saying, okay, the chief priest brought Jesus here out of envy, but the crowds are here in support of Jesus. So, I'll ask them if they want the king of the Jews. But verse 11, notice this, the chief priest stirred up the crowd. So, the picture is, there's a crowd waiting here in front of the palace where um, where Pilate is, and the chief priests are drifting through the crowd or sending messengers in. And they're whispering and they're starting rumors and they're saying things that are untrue about what Jesus had done. And they're beginning to stir up the crowd. Remember, it's, it's early in the morning. Um, and these, these people, these, these Jewish people that are here have an interest in what's going on. And the chief priests are their leaders. The chief priest was, the chief priests were made up of the current high priest and the previous high priests, the, the most powerful men in the Judaism of the time. And the chief priests are, are beginning to stir up the crowd. And, and they begin to whisper the name Barabbas. Barabbas. Have them bring out Barabbas. And then, verse 12, Pilate again says, What shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, surprising the Pilate, Crucify him. Now that is not a Jewish mode of execution. The preferred Jewish mode of execution was stoning sometimes some other modes, but, but particularly stoning. Um, the, the act of crucifixion was abhorrent to Jewish people because in Deuteronomy it says anyone who's hung on a tree is cursed of God. And so it is very astonishing that these Jewish people would cry out for this Jewish man to be crucified. And they call out for his crucifixion. A very horrible mode of execution that the Romans had taken from other people groups and had perfected as a horrible way of execution. And we, we, we know that. How many of you are wearing a cross right now? A necklace or earrings? Some of you are wearing crosses? Yeah, that is insane. Now to us, it's, it's cool, right? We have Celtic crosses. Those are really cool. Or that's a really cool design for that cross. But, but none of you are wearing a necklace with, with a, a, a syringe on it for a lethal injection. None of you are wearing a necklace with an electric chair or a gas chamber on it. And so to, to the people of the day, you would be insane to wear a cross. That's an instrument of cruel torture and death. And that is what, that is what this is. The Romans would, would, would execute people not in a room in front of witnesses. The Romans would execute people next to the highway. So imagine going down the five freeway and seeing people executed on the side. That would sober up your morning drive. To see, to see men and sometimes women hanging on a cross, bloodied, screaming. 
And that is what they're asking Pilate to do to Jesus. I asked the Lord as I studied this week to, to, to help me not just become so information-centric, centered, that I would just, I've got to explain the text, but to feel the text, to feel what's going on, to use my imagination to, to, uh, to kind of enter into what is going on here. And this is a horrible thing. This is a horrendous injustice. Verse 13, they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? Pilate, as we find out in the other gospels, has interrogated Jesus. Go to, go to the book of John for most of the end of chapter 18 and the beginning of chapter 19. It's this conversation between Jesus and Pilate. But Pilate has interrogated him. Pilate does not see anything that this man has done that deserves death. Pilate says, you're crazy. Why would you do this? He, he's innocent. What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. At this point, the crowd has been worked into a frenzy. And they want one thing. So watch Pilate's reaction. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, he wants safety and comfort and maybe even popularity above truth, which is why in the book of John, when Jesus talks about truth, Pilate says, what is truth? He elevates his own comfort he elevates his own safety. And he wishing to satisfy the crowd, what does he do? He releases for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So watch this. Barabbas is in prison. Jesus is being accused. Pilate says, you got two options. Which guy do you want? I'll give him to you. Expecting them to take Jesus, the king of the Jews. Instead, the people cry out for Barabbas. They cry out for Barabbas. And so, in a sense, Jesus and Barabbas change places. Jesus is substituted for Barabbas. Jesus takes Barabbas' place. And, and I don't want to belabor this too much, but I think there is something going on here by talking about the son of a father and then talking about Jesus, the son of the father. And we just saw in the last chapter Jesus crying out in the garden, Abba, Father, Jesus is our substitute. As we find out in the epistles, Jesus dies in our place for our sin. We were in darkness and he took our place. We deserved the wrath of God poured out on us and Jesus took our place instead. What a, what a wonderful truth and what a danger and a caution to notice here in the way that Pilate approaches life. He capitulates. He just totally gives in. The one who has the authority to crucify this man or not, capitulates to the crowd. Well, we have to finish here. And the third point in your notes is the last five verses, 16 through 20. And it's the ironic mockery of King Jesus. The ironic mockery of King Jesus. And, and Mark is, is very um, clear here. He doesn't, he doesn't focus on the physical aspects here so much. Um, he, he actually focuses more on the mockery, um, on the derision. Um, and that's because the people that Mark was writing to were familiar with, with crucifixion. They were familiar with these things. We are not. Um, and so I don't want to, to go into too much detail, but we need to understand what's going on here. And so at the very end of 15, Jesus was scourged or flogged. And, and this was a customary thing um, 
to be done before crucifixion. Let me read this for you. The prisoner was bound to a pillar or a post and beaten with a flagellum. This whip consisted of leather thongs plated with, at times, pieces of bone, lead, bronze, or with hooks, and was appropriately called, at times, a scorpion. There was no prescribed number of lashes. Now, the Jews would do 40 lashes minus one. They had a limit, a maximum number of lashes that a person was to be punished by. The the Romans had no maximum. No maximum. Now, the balls in the leather thongs would cause deep contusions on the flesh. In fact, it would be something like tenderizing meat. And the flesh, because of the hooks and the bones, was literally ripped into bloody ribbons, and significant blood loss that could occur, and oftentimes people would die from the, the, the flogging and the scourging before they even got to the cross. This is a gruesome, horrible thing. And it is what happened to Jesus, the king. And in verse 16, we begin to see the irony. So the soldiers lead him away. They take him inside the palace, inside the headquarters. And it seems that the Romans now have Jesus all to themselves. And they begin to mock. They put a purple cloak on him, which suggests royalty. They make a a crown of thorns out of a, a plant in the area. And they put it on his head as a crown. And in other Gospels, we see they give him a a fake scepter to hold, like he's the king. And remember now, Jesus has just been scourged, and he he has had significant blood loss. He's, He's been beaten already by the Jewish leaders. And now he's being hit in the head with a staff or a reed. And they begin to spit on him. And they begin to kneel down in homage, and they mock this king of the Jews. And the mockery is horrible. Jesus, already scourged, is now getting beaten on his head with a reed. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. And so it it, it behooves us to be disgusted, to be horrified, to not just go through the motions because we've heard this story so many times, but to imagine the pain and the suffering of Jesus And to see the king, because we know the end of the story, the king being mocked as a fake king. And even the Romans, in their disbelief and in their their utter sinfulness and darkness, actually say the truth. In a twisted way, they say, Hail, king of the Jews. And that is who Jesus is. He is the king of the Jews. And this is a reminder of Isaiah 50, verse 6, where it says, I gave my back to them. Jesus' back is ripped to shreds. Now, I wish we had more time, but, but Jesus is not just the king of the Jews, although he is that. Revelation 19, when Jesus comes a second time, he will not come as a poor helpless baby. He will not come in submission. He will come to make others submit. And Revelation 19 says this, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. 
He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that is the Jesus that we worship. That is the Jesus that we serve. He is coming again. Friends, he is coming again to take his redeemed home. But don't miss this. He is also coming to judge. He is also coming to judge. And we sing in a song that we sing often, Ashamed I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. If you've not been forgiven of your sins, if you have not repented, if you have not come to Jesus as the only way to forgiveness, as the only way to redemption, as the only way to be accepted by God, then you are under the wrath of God. But that's not the end. That's the bad news. The good news is what we're reading and what we're going to study next week. Jesus came to die on a cross in my place for my sins so that if I put my faith and trust in him, my sins are wiped away. White as snow, clean before God, destined for an eternity in heaven, ruling in, with Jesus in the millennial kingdom. Jew and Gentile side by side under the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that's who we serve and that's who we need to tell the world about. We've been called to tell the world this. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. Until Jesus comes back, this is our job. To share the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Let's pray. Father, what a, a terrible passage to read. What a, what a horrible thought to think of your son, the only perfect one, the only one who did not deserve this kind of thing, being tortured, beaten, mocked. Lord, in his human body, fully God yet fully man, submitting himself to your will as Jew and Gentile alike mock him and beat him. God, thank you that we didn't have to take that. Thank you that Jesus took it for us. God, may I not take that for granted. May that change the way I live my life. May that change the way that we view life because God, the Almighty, the Creator, the Holy One, who in His righteous wrath would be fully within his rights to wipe us all out. Father, in your mercy and in your free grace, you've chosen to save us for your purposes so that we may be adopted as sons and daughters of the King. Lord, help us to tell that message to all those around us. Father, as we, as we get ready to hear from Michael about Israel, Lord, would you, would you help us to, to have ears to hear? And God, I pray for anyone this morning that has been convicted of their sin by the Holy Spirit. Would you work in them? And would you help them to seek out one of the leaders in this church that they may come to grips with who Jesus really is, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, you're so good and so kind to us. Thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.